Good morning, First Baptist Church. Good morning. Good morning. Isaiah and I are privileged, honored to be invited by Rob to uh, read the word from chapter 16 about a typical, rich, unsaved, apathetic to the poor man and a typical poor, desperate, fully dependent on God, poor man who found his way to the bosom of Abraham in heaven. And I don't know if it was just for me or if it was for some of you as well, but I just read a little bit before this passage to see if there was some kind of connecting context that would guide my thinking as I read this. And, you know, um, it seemed like about everybody and their dog was focused on their money since chapter 14, verse 1. Check this out. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And then down in verse 12, it says he went on to say to one of the, uh, the one who invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, who cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And then in verse 16, he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. He says, and several people gave excuses. One said, I have bought a piece of land expensive. I bought a piece of land. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. That's 10 oxen, I think. Is it not? Another one, more than any, more than any dollar value you could put, he said, I have uh, married a wife and, you know, I'm staying home. <laughs> Another one, uh, so he's, then he's, um, let's see, the slave came back and reported and the man said, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the lame, the poor, the crippled, the blind. Those who couldn't, they didn't have any source of income. Now, the large clouds now, he's talking to large crowds. He says, we're going along, they were going along with him, with Jesus. And he, Jesus, turned to them and started talking. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, and cannot be by my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, that's costly, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Or what king, when he's going out to fight a battle, doesn't estimate how many he has compared to the enemy? Right? He says, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. This is a hot topic right now. Everybody's thinking about it. Even Isaiah. No. <laughs> now, hear this. All the tax, chapter 15, verse 1, all the tax collectors, they used to get, beg more out of people. Hey, I won't, I, they charge them more than they were, uh, than they were supposed to pay, and then they'd pocket it. The, they were uh, the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes were also in this crowd. They began to grumble, at which point Jesus challenged them. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep 
I have never even seen a hundred sheep, and I, and I live in the land of the, of the rich. But, okay, that's a lot of sheep. But guess what? He'll leave those and chase after the one that's lost because it's such a big deal. We're talking about people who have money on their mind and their mind on their money, okay? I think it's the other way around, but whatever. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and she loses one, she's going to go find that baby, whether, whatever it takes, she's going to find it, right? And then in verse 11, you have the prodigal son, right? Who went out and he squandered his estate after he demanded his inheritance from his dad. Went out and wasted it. His brother said, hey, he devoured your wealth, dad, with prostitutes. And the bigger issue wasn't that he did that to his father's belongings, but that he didn't get the same belongings. And he didn't get to do that. And so it's, these guys are, everybody in the context here. Now he was also saying to his disciples, the rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. So basically what he did, he did something very wise in this world. He went and forgave some of their debts so that when his, fi- when his master fired him, he went out and had some buddies to work with. And the end result that Jesus was used that um, to teach is that I think the principle here is that you should use your money to get people saved so that when they get to heaven, they can welcome you. Um, and then he, final, he's, he finishes this, this uh, section. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't. You can't do both. Now the Pharisees, get this, verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, and that's what I think this whole passage was about because listen what it's going to say next. The Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. They were having none of it. It was in this context that Jesus presents, was it a parable or was it a real story? I don't know. It might be the first one where somebody in the parable actually has a name. So maybe it's a a real-life story. There was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. Verse 19, this is where we're reading. Joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and he was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and he was buried. Now the poor man died. I already read that. In Hades... This rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. That would be the the privileged place, figuratively speaking, probably. And he carried out, and he cried out, and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life, you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. 
And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that they may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Well, I think we could probably just say amen and, uh, and go home. You just got a beautiful load of the Word of God. And we're going to come back to that story of the rich man and Lazarus probably at the very end, but not until the very end this morning. The, the idea, and if we could bring up the slides there. That would be great. There we are. The idea that we're talking about this morning is the rich life. So what Timber just helped us to understand as we look through the Word of God in Luke is that that riches are kind of a focus like for everybody. I mean, Jesus wasn't just isolating this idea of being rich like it was a problem for that society alone. This is a problem, well, it's a problem that your society faces. And to be very honest, it's a problem that you and I face too. The rich life, we can live a rich life, but it's a rich life that looks a little differently perhaps than we might normally think. It's really a rich life of loving what we have. And I want to suggest this morning that there's really a pretty simple way to guess pretty accurately what most any of us want at a given moment. Because typically, the thing we want most is the one thing that we don't have. Have you ever been on an elimination diet? No coffee, no ice cream, and what do you crave? Coffee and ice cream. And even if you eliminate things that aren't normally your favorite things to eliminate, or things that you like best in your diet, uh, when you, maybe they, it's like, I have to not eat salad. What's the thing you long for? Why? It's the first time you've ever desired to be a rabbit. And, and you want to taste something of that crunchy, nice lettuce because it's the one thing you can't have. It's really a problem that we all face, longing for whatever it is that we don't have before us. It happens in relationships, too. Think about the homesick college freshman yearning to be back home around the family table, a place he thought was dumb just two months before, and couldn't wait to get out of there. Thought it was a waste of time. And really, it's been happening like this since the very beginning of time. If you trace all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2, you may remember that in verse 15, this is what we're told happened, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And this is what God said to the man. This is the command. The Lord God commanded the man, verse 16, chapter 2, Genesis, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. That's the permission. Are, are you with me? There's permission to eat of what? Every tree of the garden. Now, that's pretty expansive. That's pretty broad. How wide was the permission that was given to man? 
It was 100% except for one tree. And that's what continues. But the tree of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Permission and prohibition. The prohibition, though, was very, very small. But what was it that Adam and Eve wanted? Think about it. They had all the trees of every good kind. This isn't a perfect garden. There were no pests. There was no blight. There was no disgusting problem that happened to any of these particular kinds of trees or the fruits that grew upon them. And the thing that they found that they wanted most was the one thing that was prohibited. So it's a pretty easy litmus test to find out what it is that we actually really want The essence of what took place that fateful day in the interaction between the serpent and Eve in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis really is that Eve was led to believe that God was holding out on her. That there was something that she really needed or especially would fulfill her cravings that was just outside her reach. That God was not going to give her what was really best That one good thing that God withheld became the object of her deepest desire. Remember, again, that she could have had absolutely anything in this beautiful garden. It was the very best of an untainted world that was at her disposal. In fact, wrapped up in God's command was mostly permission, as we've seen. Of every tree you may eat. But one prohibition beyond that permission, the tree that was forbidden... And what happened at the fall of mankind was, in a sense, a microcosm for what's been happening ever since. Even when our lives are crowded with good things, we long for the one thing that we can't have. Think about it. Single people long to be married because they're so lonely. Married people long for a little time alone because they're so married. Young people long for maturity. Old people long for youth. Busy people long for simplicity. And quiet people living in quiet places long for something with excitement, something that will fill their lives with purpose and activity and meaning. So what is it that you want most? What is it that you feel that God has withheld from you? Where does it seem like God's taken a wrong turn in his sovereign direction of your life? What's the one thing about your life that you wish you could change? Think about it. Take honest stock of your soul's cravings. And with that one thing in view, that one thing that in that sense stands between you and really loving the rich life that God has given you, I want to take you to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, I want to explore what it means for us to really love what we have when what we have is very little. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I want to begin reading with you in verse 3. This is what Paul writes to his son in the faith, Timothy. If anyone, Paul writes, teaches a different doctrine... And does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit 
and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Now listen to what Paul says this depravity of mind and deprivation of the truth produces. Here's what he says. These people imagine that godliness... Follow with me that godliness is a means of gain. That I can get something. That I can add that one thing that I feel like I lack to my life by trying to be more like God. But Paul reproves that idea following, and this is what he says, Now there is a great gain in godliness coupled with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But, Paul says, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Food and clothing. That's pretty little. That's a pretty small expectation of life, that you should have just food and clothing. But that's what Paul says. Listen on. He says, But those who desire, verse 9, to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So Paul corrects here the idea that godliness is a means to getting what we want. And instead he establishes this truth that godliness is gain when coupled with contentment. Or to say it another way, using the life to come as a way to pad my life here is the path to ruin. And conversely, loving the life to come while contenting myself with God's provisions here is really lasting gain. Let me say it one more time in a different way to see if we can grab this concept. Pursuing this life always results in damage to my soul. Now that's a simple enough truth for us to grasp. Pursuing this life always results in damage to my soul. But I think that sometimes we're a little bit like the person who's been told that they must stop some pernicious habit that's wreaking havoc on their health. And they know that it's damaging to them. And the doctor has said, you do realize that you're cutting off years from your life with every passing month that you practice this particular habit. And the patient nods and says, I do understand that, doctor. And I'll sure, well, you know, actually, I don't think I care quite enough to do anything about it. So the truth is that loving this life really does result in damage to our soul, and we have to decide that we actually believe that and that we care enough to do something about it. Pursuing the life to come, to the contrary, whatever our earthly status results in eternal gain. And it's the basis, this is the basis for loving what we have. I want you to note again, as we stopped and looked at it a moment ago, that the things that Paul stipulates as little in our experience 
really are very little. He says food and clothing. That's it. That's all that it requires for you to be content. And this is really the first part of several messages that I would love to be able to bring to you that shows that it's not even necessary to have food and clothing in order to be content. But here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll just take what Paul says here and say that we can be content just with food and clothing. And by the way, he doesn't say with the finest food or with the best clothing. He just says food and clothing. So essentially, the very basics of our existence are all that are required to practice contentment. That's all that we have to have. I think you hear in Paul's statement really an echo of Job's experience. You remember Job and what he experienced as God had taken, in one sense, everything, everything away from him. His security, his livelihood, his family, all was gone. And Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped and said this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I think that we tend to think that satisfaction with the barest essentials is really for those hard times in life when we hit a financial reversal or, or when we experience a breakdown in our health or maybe when we lose someone who's very dear to us. But Paul's argument is clear. No one in any circumstance in life ever takes anything out of this world. So there's really no purpose to pursuing it. That's the bottom line. No one ever takes anything out, Paul says. So why are we spending so much energy pursuing that which simply will not last? When my kids were little, we have a big woods behind our house. And, and when we bought the property that we currently uh, live on, um, my parents bought the back half, the back five acres. And we live on the front five acres. And the back half is mostly woods. And my kids found the woods to be kind of a magical world for them as, as little people. And so they and some neighbors of ours who lived right behind that back five acres or right next to it would go out into the worlds and they, uh, woods and they literally created kind of, their own, uh, kind of their own cosmos out there. They had tree forts and other kinds of forts and, and they had places where they did things and they named things just like you might expect cities or towns to have names. So they had the little bog and the big bog and I don't remember all the other things that were, that were named out there and uh, places that were, there was Fort Pork, that was short for Fort Porcupine because it had nails sticking all the way through so if you stood up too fast, you'd split your scalp. And I mean, there were all kinds of different things that were out there in the woods. But in addition to just creating a place, naming a place, and, and having different activities and things that they would do together with these neighbors out back, they came up with their own economy. And, and what they used for money in that economy that took place in our woods were little glass pebbles. You know the kind that they put in fish tanks? Yeah, that's what they did. So they had orange ones and yellow ones, and they were worth certain amounts. Now, I mean, it obviously wasn't worth, worth much money, and you and I would say, I mean, it's about worth going to the fish, right? But, but uh, they had those, and the orange ones, if you bought this, you could get this. And they would then go set up shop in the woods. So it wasn't just a place where you could have wars, although they had those as well, but it was a place where you could also practice economics. I couldn't have come up with a better economy class for my kids. I didn't come up with it. They came up with it. 
And so they would get these nuggets and they would then build uh, or uh, get together their wares and sell them to one another for so many glass nuggets of such and such colors. And I think it reminds me of the value of the little green papers that we're always pursuing because they're worth about as much, maybe not actually quite as much, as the little glass nuggets that were the foundation of the economy in the woods. Because in one sense, we're doing the very same thing. We're playing with things that are in a world that's not a fiction, but is really just a shadow. We're playing a shadow game in a whole world that's just a, a beginning point for all that is to come. So I think we want to say with Paul, there's really no purpose to spending all my energy to get stuff to add to my experience here when no one takes anything out of it into the economy of eternity. If we're going to love what we have, we're going to have to invest in the economy of heaven and be content with whatever little we may have here on this earth. I want to show you what Paul says in four specific ways this morning about how to do that, how to have contentment with what we have, how to love what we have, when what we have is very little, maybe even just as little as food and clothing. And so if you'll look down at verse 11 with me, in verse 11, Paul makes a very important statement, and he says that we should, uh uh-oh, I just bound up the device here, sorry. He says that we should escape the love of things. This is what he says in verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. There we go. Flee these things. Flee what things? Well, all the things that we've just been talking about, this broken philosophy that there's a possibility of of building something in this life that will matter forever that's just based on stuff. Flee this idea. Flee this theology. Flee this economy that is not really true to the economics of heaven and we think of this idea of fleeing, we could put it into the term escape, escape the love of things. We think of it in the way that Paul uses the word flee in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22. You may remember that there Paul says to Timothy, flee youthful lusts. And we're right, because that's the same idea that is presented here. But in this case, not fleeing youthful lusts, but instead fleeing from the love of stuff. Fleeing from the love of things. Run from it like it's chasing you to destroy you. Because it is. Escaping has the idea of putting distance between ourselves and someone or something that's pursuing us. And it makes me think of Joseph. You remember Joseph who left his coat in the hand of the seductress, Potiphar's wife, and ran, he did not trust himself in that moment of temptation to be strong enough to stay and stand in the presence of the temptation. He fled. He escaped. He got out of there. He put as much distance as he possibly could between him and the one who wanted to pursue him to take down his soul. There was a professor that uh, I had in college. Kyle had him too. His name is Dewey Bertolini, and he had this quote that I've never forgotten. He said, I'm not sure what's happening there. There we go. He said that the four most dangerous words in the Christian life are, I can handle 
it. Do you remember him saying that? Yeah, he said it to you too. <laughs> so the four most dangerous words in the Christian life, I can handle it. Notice that was not Joseph's thought as he ran from the seductress. And it shouldn't be our thought either when we are presented with the love of things. So the same way that you would flee from sexual temptation, Paul says, flee from the love of stuff. Get out of there. Put distance between you and all the things that want to grab your attention. Really, Paul doesn't think that Timothy can handle long, comfortable association with this kind of errant teaching about gain. He tells him to beat a trail out of there. I, I grew up in rattlesnake country in Northern California. We never actually saw a rattlesnake on the four and a half acres that I lived on, but it was that kind of dry country, and, and, um, and we knew that there were rattlesnakes in the area. And so we were always aware, not afraid, but aware that you could always run across a snake, and maybe a bad snake. We did see some snakes, but never a rattler. But we knew they were around. And... Um, I remember a friend of mine in school uh, telling about being on one of those trails in Northern California, and uh, she stumbled upon, well, happily, she didn't actually stumble on the rattlesnake that was in the path, but she just about got in harm's way. But her mother was somewhere in proximity, and her mother, seeing the snake that the girl did not see, gave one word of imperative command, bolt! Get out of there. And that's what Paul is telling us here. He's saying, don't waste any time. Get out of there. Break all association with the, the love of things, the love of stuff that will otherwise grab you and destroy your soul. As for you, O man of God, verse 11, flee these things. Bolt. Get out of there. We need to be prepared to leave behind anything which would slow us from our flight from the embrace of money lust. Is anything holding you back from running? Is there anything in your life you're afraid to give to God? That's probably the thing that God wants. And it's that thing that will hold you in the place of temptation until you fall to that temptation's power. If you don't surrender it to him. So flee, escape, escape the love of money. But then Paul continues with a second exhortation here at the second part of verse 11, chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. This is what he says here. If we were to escape the love of things, we're now to chase after loving God. You see, we're not really just running from false ideas that want to take us down. We're instead building our lives on what really matters. We're pursuing the currency of heaven. In a sense, Paul is restating what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6. You may remember it, verses 19 through 21. Do not, Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So Paul says this, as we're running from the lust for things, we don't just run aimlessly into some kind of a wilderness. We are running for the real gold. We're racing to love our God. 
in righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And that's just a sampling that Paul gives us there of the ways in which we are pursuing, chasing after the love of God. You see, running, after, running from sin and running to God are really two ways of looking at the same action. Are you catching me? There are two ways of looking at the very same thing. We run away from the sin, but in doing so, we run toward God. And vice versa, if you're running two things, you are really running away from God. We tend to operate on the mistaken notion that fleeing from sin and pursuing God are are two disconnected ideas. So we just really try hard not to give in to the allure of worldly things. Like that effort's somehow enough to conquer our internal lusts for stuff. But it isn't enough. It's a good first step, but it's not enough. We have to, in the same moment, be realizing that we are running toward God as we run away from evil. Jesus makes a pretty dramatic case for this truth in Luke 11 in 24 through 26, and using another concept, follow the parallel here, he says this, when an unclean spirit, Jesus speaking, has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. Now, catch the picture. This is, a, this is who? This is a person from whom an evil spirit has been cast out. Okay, so this, this evil spirit is now gone. This person is experiencing, perhaps for the very first time, or the very first time in a long time, freedom from an absolutely dominating power. That's what Jesus is talking about. So now he continues. He says, The Spirit, though, going out, looking for a place to find rest, finds none, and says this, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it, the Spirit, comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. The person is free. The place is clean. It's wide open for occupation. Then it goes, this Spirit, and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state, Jesus comments, of that person is worse than the first. It's not enough just to be free from evil. We have to pursue after God. And really, they are intended to be one and the same action. We flee evil by pursuing after God. And in pursuing after God, we flee evil It's good to say, I won't look at that evil thing anymore. But what are you preparing to look at before the temptation strikes again when no one is watching? It's good to say, I won't get angry again. But how are you going to aim your passion before you get into a situation where you're irritated again? It's good to say, I am not going to let anxiety rule me. But how are you centering your life on the peace of God now, before worrisome circumstances overwhelm you and you fall into fear again? 
it really comes down to a question of your personal identity. I, I wonder what you would think if you asked me who I was and I told you, I am not a lover of money. The negation is useful, and maybe it's, it's even critical, but it needs to be completed in order to be effective. It's hard to just not be something. What are you? I am not. But what are you? Could we say, I am a lover of God who is so satisfied with God's riches that there is no room in my life? For loving money any more. And the idea of money, by the way, is much broader than just greenbacks. It's all the stuff of this life. Anything that you can lay your eyes on, the visible things that you can hold and touch and taste and feel, those things, those things are the things of this shadow world that are preparing us for the world to come. But they're not to be the object of our affections. And Paul says, flee from the love of those things. Flee from the love of those things right into the arms of your God. The king of the rule and reign of all that is real and right in the world to come. So Paul makes a short list for Timothy of how to do this. And, and this is the short list here. We'll just fly through it. He says you're to pursue after righteousness. That is, you're to run after the approval of God he says you're to pursue after godliness, so run after the worship of God. And faith, we're going to run after confidence in God alone. We're going to run after love, run after what pleases God. And after steadfastness, we're going to run with endurance toward God. Even when it feels like everything and everyone is against us, we won't give up. And we're going to, believe it or not, actually run with gentleness we're going to run with a divine strength. It's not dependent on us to be more determined alone. It's dependent on God. And so we can be gentle in the process as we pursue after the love of God. We run with righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness as we chase after the love of God. Paul continues then in verse 12, and he makes this statement. Struggle in the noble contest. Fight, he says, the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. How are you to love God? How are you to chase after this love of God? By struggling in the noble contest. Did you know that real contentment, genuine article contentment, is based on faith? Now, anyone can say, many fallaciously say, life's a beach. All is good. There are really no problems. I'm quite happy with my lot in life. But life isn't the beach. And there's not everything in your life that is going to make you happy. So contentment has to do with a proposition of faith that I believe not just that my circumstances are okay, but that the character of my God who is dealing those circumstances to me is right, that he does what's right. Like we said about Job, that he is the right God doing what is right. The only way to be content with just the essentials, food and clothing, is to believe that God knows what he is up to and that what he is up to is good. Job actually said 
in a sense we could paraphrase what Job said, to say this, God has the right to do whatever he pleases, and all that God pleases to do is right. Again, that's a faith proposition. You look at where Job was when he made those kinds of statements in the early part of the book of Job. His circumstances were terrible, loathsome, detestable. No one wants to trade positions with Job. Even talking about Job as a possible thing, his experience as being something possible for me can put terror into me. It's like, no, no, please, not the Job experience. But Job believed by faith that he could be content, yes, even with the little or the nothing that he had because he knew his God. God He said toward the end of the book, it was a long lesson for him, a very long lesson, about 42 chapters of lesson, God has the right to do whatever he pleases, and all that he pleases to do is right. If you want to go to school, by the way, on Job, just read the final chapters where God himself schools him in this truth. This is the truth that the Lord God teaches to Job in the final chapters of that book. But we can embrace it right now by faith, say, I don't understand why God has given me so little. And I think we can be honest enough just to face that. I don't really understand why I have been given less. But we can say, but I know the character of my God, and I don't have to understand. I don't have to know the answer. Like Job you can actually proceed simply on the basis of faith. You do know that Job, from all we know from the biblical record, may never have known why those things happened to him. We know about the contest that was going on in the heavens. We know that Satan came and was talking to God, and God was making an amazing demonstration for all of us and for all of the angelic beings to always see. But we don't know that Job ever knew that. He does now. But he may never have known that then. His only way to get through to contentment, his only way was by faith. That's the only way. Fight the good fight of faith. That is a struggle. In fact, that's the very word that's used here for fight. The idea of a fight is actually the way we get the English word agony. That's what the Greek word represents, agony. This is an agony, and it is an agony. It's an agony of faith to reconcile what I experience with the character of God, but it's a fight worth having. And it's a fight you're going to get to fight every day of your life. Do you remember the time the prophet Elijah was fed by ravens by the brook Cherith? And do you remember that when the brook dried up, God told Elijah to go visit a widow Now get this, a widow who is on the brink of starvation herself. What a great place to send a guy who's starving to someone else who's starving. In fact, who's gathering a few sticks so that she can make a little fire and a few cakes to feed herself and her son one last meal. And God says, Elijah, I've got a place of provision and plenty for you. (laughs) What a sense of humor that God has. And he sends him, and this is what God tells Elijah to say. In fact, he told Elijah, I have commanded her, this penniless widow, to feed you. God sent Elijah to the very worst possible place to get provision, to a place where there was almost no provision at all. Elijah said to her, when he spoke to her, do not fear, 
But now catch this. First, make me a little cake and bring it to me. They're eating one last meal. And he said, that's fine. Just bring me one first. And afterward, make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of, the, of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of flour shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Do you feel the struggle? Do you feel the agony? The fight of faith? This woman has been asked to give the very last she had first to the prophet who comes and says, hey, I've got good news. Your jar of oil is not going to fail and the, and the flour, it's going to keep on going until God sends rain. And the only thing she has to hold on to, the only thing she has to hold on to is that God said it. And that's all you have to hold on to, too. You might have more than the widow who stood at the brink of starvation itself. You might actually even have food and clothing. But that's all you have to hold on to, too. That God said it. And that this God who says what he says is good. And that he is really quite enough for your needs. So Paul says, fight the good struggle. Struggle the good struggle of faith. And then he concludes with this final statement Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called about, called, and about which you made the good profession, good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul really gives his son in the faith, Timothy, an emphasis here at the conclusion of the completion of the fight. It's the goal of the struggle. We fight the good fight. We struggle the good struggle. We agonize in the good agony. That's the idea. We agonize in the good agony to win. We're not just in this race to compete. We're in this race to win. So Paul says, seize life eternal. It's really what Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in verse 24, saying it a different way, do you not know that in a race runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Run to win. And Paul talks about his own experience in the same kind of terms in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. He says, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's really only one thing in Paul's mind as he agonizes in the great agony, agony, as he runs in the great race. There's just one thing in his mind, the prize. He is after the big win. Is there anything that's distracting you from this noble contest? Is there anything that's hindering you from seizing life eternal May I encourage you just to let go of everything and run because there's a great prize ahead of you. 
seizing life eternal is in one sense the sum of all the other three admonitions that Paul gives here to Timothy. We remember in seizing life eternal that this world is really just a launching point for the life that is forever. That's the kind of talk that Paul uses when he addresses people who have more than the essentials of life. And one of these days we may get to this part of this passage. Later on in the same chapter, he says to those who have riches. So they have lots. We have, in this part of the chapter, we have little. But coming up, we have lots. He says that these people are to get this in verse 18 of the same chapter. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up, get this, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. They are to seize life eternal. Those who have lots, let go of everything they have. Those who have little, the same remedy. Let go of everything you have and run because the one thing that matters is the prize. We, uh, the word used for eternal here doesn't just press us to consider our future condition like people who are going through a tunnel to get to the other side or like we're holding our breath to get past a bad smell. Eternal emphasizes the quality of the life we live right now because this eternal life is our present possession. So we endure as we agonize through the contest of faith because our whole life has a character that's much deeper than hours and minutes or dollars and cents or profit and possessions. Our lives are bigger than those temporary things. We know that the culmination of life is in the life to come. When faith is sight and temporary gives way to the permanent, when the shadows of the things that seem so important now are replaced by the substance that gave them any real value in the first place. Only people who are in this pursuit can be truly content. So we live in this world like people who are just not from these parts. Because in the truest sense, we really aren't. It really isn't of any consequence to us, to people who are content, what the citizens of this world, citizens of this world think about us or how richly we live here because we live in this world as citizens of the next. That's very easy to say. But it's going to take escaping the love of things and chasing after the love of God and struggling in the noble contest and seizing life eternal in order to actually bring that home to our lives this afternoon, tomorrow, and in the weeks to come. Donnie Friedrichson, a pastor in Florida, put it this way. He says this, and I quote, This life is a blessing. Every moment is a gift. There is much in this life that is good, true, and beautiful, but this life is the appetizer. It's meant merely to whet our appetites for what is to come. We should not try to fill ourselves with this life. We were meant for so much more. All that is good in this life is a blessing from God, but that blessing is meant to point us toward the consummation of the ages. An appetite whetted for the main course is a life that longs for eternity. To rephrase what Donnie Friedrichson was saying, can we put it this way? Don't try to fill up on appetizers. The main course 
is coming. That's the person who's content. He realizes that his life does not consist in things, not even in little things. His life consists of building for the life to come. We could also say this, we must debunk the scarcity model, which makes us long for the one thing we cannot have, makes us crave and lands us always in the clutches of discontent by seizing life eternal. That's the life of abundance that's yet to come, the life that is your present possession by faith. In our scripture reading this morning, Timber helped us to consider the story of the poor man and Lazarus. Lazarus, who was so poor and so sick that he just laid at the gate of the rich man, hoping for a few morsels that fell from the sumptuous spread on the rich man's table. The food he longed for, think about it, was the diet of the dogs. They were the ones who got the scraps that fell from the master's table, you may remember. And it was the dogs who were really his companions. They were the ones who came and licked the sores all over his body. He had very little. And what he had was not desirable. Death came for the two men, as it always does. And you know the rest of the story. Because in eternity, their roles were exactly reversed. Precise mirror images of each other. There, the once rich man was astonishingly poor. And not only poor, but in torment in the flames of hell. While Lazarus, once appallingly poor, was rich. Escorted by angels to heaven, to comfort, and to the companionship, this time not of dogs, but of Abraham, the hero of faith and the father of the nation. And Abraham personally attends to Lazarus like a son because he was his son by faith. Lazarus had not lived for this world. He never enjoyed much in this life. He lived for the life to come. And in the end, he seized life eternal. I wonder what we're living for. Are we living for this life or for the life to come? And if we say that we're living for the life to come, how are we putting that great statement, that theory, into practice? How are we really escaping the love of things and chasing after the love of God? How are we really struggling in the noble contest and seizing life eternal? How can we love what we have when we have very little? We could summarize this whole passage with this one statement. Build this life on the life to come. How are you building your life on the life to come? I find that for me, it's pretty easy to say words that sound good when it comes to this matter. But I find that it's very hard to actually practice it, to actually live my life like the next life is what matters. 
I find that it's little things that get in my way that I say what I really want right now is that one thing. Last night, it was our septic tank that wanted to back up. And you know what I really wanted last night? You know it, right? The one thing I didn't have, a functioning septic tank. Right? Right? You get it. You understand. That's the thing that we tend to do. But God says, build your life on the life to come. Don't let the things you don't have define you. Don't let the things you don't have or that you wish you could change be the one thing that makes you who you are. No, live loving what you have. 